This is the Monday, February 8th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and many other personal audio outlets. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other car radio, right there in the dashboard. Of course, today we're not riding in a car, but a time machine, and it's shaped like a great white coach. Hey, who's that beside us in the back seat? It's the father of our country, George Washington. Today's book is by Timothy Hall Breen, and it's titled George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation. Mr. Breen is the James Marsh Professor at Large at the University of Vermont and the author of 11 books on American history, including the one I'd like to read next, The Marketplace of Revolution, How Consumer Politics Shaped American Independence. You can follow him on Twitter at Timothy H. Breen. Well, now that we've set up a little bit about George Washington's journey, let's get in that time machine and meet the father of our country in a way that we really haven't seen him before, on a road trip. I'm joined on the line by Tim Breen from Snowy, Vermont. He's the author of George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show today. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to the conversation, Dean. I really love the idea of this book. It's drama. It's political theater. It's Washington sort of stripped of a lot of the pageantry and the paintings and him standing posing when he's an older man. This is him really at a crossroads here. And you open George Washington's journey by saying flat out throughout history, revolutions have usually ended badly. I wanted you to give us an idea. What's at stake? This is not just a tour that Washington's taking. What's at stake as the first president goes on this journey? Well, as you know, I mean, anybody that reads the newspaper or reads history, revolutions usually do end badly. Uh, when the war, the fighting's over, it uh, introduces a long period of factions, of coups, of rewriting the Constitution endless times. And if we take George Washington's perspective, he came out of the American Revolution very, very gratified that we beat the British. But he understood that the great challenge to a revolutionary regime was keeping together. His whole goal in the fighting the revolution was to form a new nation that was secure and safe and prosperous. And during the 1780s leading up to the Constitution, he saw that as a post-revolutionary period. We think of it as the beginning of a great time of constitutional security, but that's, that's our view, not his. And so when he entered the presidency with great reluctance, he, he really 
didn't want to leave Mount Vernon, but he took it because he was so frightened that the fragmentation of regions and states would undo what he had fought for in the American Revolution. And that's the perspective I tried to uh, bring to this journey. While it was a you know, wonderful story, and I, I tell you, as a historian, doing the research on the road was a terrific experience, getting out of the office, getting out of the library. But for him, it was serious business. And he wanted to make sure that our country had a future and he could cement the Union. I think only Abraham Lincoln may have cared about the Union as much as George Washington did in 1789. You talk in the book, too, about just how little people had in common in different parts of the country. They would have more in common, say, if they were in South Carolina with somebody that was over in Europe or in Africa or in some uncharted place than they did in New England. There really is a very fractured 13 separate colonies. You said something important there. You said our view, not his. And I think that's something we always have to beat into our heads. I know I do anyway, just speak for myself. There's so much here that you see when he's going. There's no no communications, really, that we would think of as communications. Everything has to be sent by horse. And this is not Washington with nothing to do. He's laying everything down. It's one reason the vice president, John Adams, is against him going, I learned from reading your book, because they say, what if there's a crisis? What if Britain decides they're going to attack a ship? It'll be almost impossible to reach Washington. So what does he put in place to guard against that if there's a crisis? Well, I found that very interesting. The, the trip, what I call a journey, was actually four segments, but the longest by far was when he left Philadelphia, that was then the capital of the United States, and took the coach all the way down to Savannah, Georgia, and then back. And it was clear that when he was in those southern states, if that crisis uh, arose, he couldn't make it back. So he he left it to his cabinet, primarily Jefferson and Hamilton, to make decisions as if they were the president. It was, frankly, a very constitutionally dicey decision. He basically told his colleagues that, look, when I get back, I'll just say that I would have done the same thing. I'll cover for you. <laughs> Crazy. The problem is that in all these plans, he forgot the vice president. He just assumed that Adams would be back in Braintree, Massachusetts, either minding his own business or sulking. And uh, it was only at the last moment Washington said, oh, oh, by the way, if the vice president's still around the Capitol, include him in these decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John Adams, he talks so often in his letters, of course, everything about him being vain and forgotten and not thought of well. And I guess after David McCullough's book, everybody sort of had a soft spot for him. But you could really see him being left out. My favorite example is they didn't want to hear John Adams lecturing them all the time, so they just cut him off. That's why the vice president doesn't speak in the Senate. You just just sit there, wait. If we have a tie, we'll call you. And that's very much what it is here with Adams. And Washington is so dedicated to this journey and thinks it's so important that he's willing to risk that. He's willing to risk a constitutional crisis. He's willing to risk being so far away, no maps, no GPS, obviously, mm -hmm. barely even any roads. And yet it's so important for him to bring the federal government to the people that he decides to really risk everything here. He almost dies a few times, doesn't he? Uh, right. Most historians have overlooked the fact that on this trip, he had two near fatal accidents. One, 
he crossed over the uh, Chesapeake uh, Bay to uh, Annapolis. And while he was halfway across the bay, a terrible storm came up. His boat uh, went, went aground on a, a sand spit, but it was pretty dangerous stuff. And uh, he was rescued the, the next day. All the people in Annapolis, the governor, they could see the crisis from the shore, but they couldn't do anything to rescue the president. And then later, as he left Mount Vernon, headed towards Charleston and Savannah, he was crossing the river on a little uh, barge or flatboat, and the horses panicked and went, went off into the water. Again, he was fortunate there because there were a lot of spectators, and they immediately lent a hand and calmed the horses down. But you think, uh, this is in the birthplace of our, our country. What if in 1791, Washington had died on the road? I think his worst nightmares might have come to focus uh, without a leader of his strength and charisma. I think all the factions and the backbiting would have just burst out. So, yeah, the trip was a tremendous sacrifice and, frankly, quite dangerous. Yeah, and I imagine John Adams mentioning that. I'm picturing what he would have done, and I think he was not too reserved to give an I told you so, and I think that would have been very hard. to. You wonder when you read early American history, not that we have a great record of vice presidents uh, overall, but back then where the mortality was so high, and yet, uh, of course, Adams was elected. I guess I shouldn't say that about him, but it's when they pick them, and then you say, gosh, did you ever even consider? It's kind of an interesting thing, especially when we haven't settled yet who takes over if the vice president dies. But it was an exciting part of George Washington's journey because every bump that he hits, every problem, I mean, he's not young and he's gotten sick many times. Disease can kill you and all of this. It's very exciting where he's going. And he's also not eating the best food. He's not really taking care of himself great, correct? Well, one of the uh, slightly humorous elements of writing this book, Dean, was the fact that in public, Washington made a very big deal out of staying in public inns and taverns. And the reason he did, it was really smart, and it, has, it resonates even today. He said, look, I was elected by the people. I'm the public servant, and the government should pay my way. But more, if I go to a private person's house in South Carolina or Massachusetts, they immediately will act like they have a special influence over the president. What, what I'll, my visit will do will create faction. So by staying in a public inn, I will free myself from any doubt that I'm favoring one local politician over another local politician. I'm, I'm not going to take uh, presents or special meals at all, which I think was really brilliant. And it should, should have been a, a precedent that our politicians later followed. But what was funny is that in his private diary, Dean, he complained about the ends. Oh, it was bad food. They mistreated his horses. There were mosquitoes. <laughs> it, it was almost like a, a travel guide of ends to avoid if you were going to you know, sort of a trip advisor for the president. You say he complains. Makes me think of these frustrations that he would have had. We've all been on a long road trip. Uh, I want to get back to the fact that you actually are following his route and what inspired you to do that. But he also goes out of his way here to stay at not the best, finest places. And Washington, another human thing about him that maybe we don't get out of the paintings is he has a temper. 
And he doesn't like things not done well. He doesn't like, I can completely see as a man who depends on his horse, being irritated if his horse is, is mistreated. But he depends mm-hmm. on that so much for his life. And so for you to go and follow this journey, first of all, I'm sure everyone wonders how much of the roads are left and how much easier is it today to travel it? And did that affect you? And what stimulates you there to get out, as you said, of the library at Mount Vernon or out of your office and go follow in his footsteps? Well, originally, uh, I was doing research, and I uh, uh, became acquainted with Washington's diaries. He kept rather full diaries, although his comments are not all that revealing. But I, I became very interested in the, uh, this trip, and I, uh, I decided that I would learn more about the president and his interaction with the American people at a key point in our history if I physically saw the places. I I believe very, very strongly. I studied in graduate school years ago with C. Van Woodward, the great Southern historian, and he he always said to his students, don't ever write about a place you haven't seen because you won't understand it. And there's a lot of wisdom there. And by going down uh, across North Carolina to little towns like Halifax and Tarboro and New Bern, and then uh, uh, following him around Charleston, which was one of the great moments of uh, Washington's journey. He loved Charleston. I, I felt, and I know this probably sounds very trivial, but I, I felt in my own journey, I gained a much fuller insight into the man I was writing about. And if you're the kind of person that loves history and wants to be where these figures were, you mentioned you were kind enough to listen to the old 76 house episode of the history author show just to get an idea of how I do this. And for me to sit there and be in the place at the very bar where Washington was, that's definitely a connection. You think he took his meals here. It's strange, but it is a real connection. And you show us these throughout George Washington's journey, and it makes these markers on the side of the road and on houses really come to life. And you must have felt that when you were going up to a place. As I said, even though we travel so much easier today, when you get to the end of a journey and find that you're, okay, I'm in the spot now, I've caught the general, <laughs> I imagine mm-hmm. you must have felt. Oh, it was terrific. Now, the roads have changed, as you would expect, and it was oftentimes difficult to demonstrate that I was still on the same road, uh, but I think it was it was pretty good. But uh, one of the interesting uh, elements I found in places like Exeter, New Hampshire, and New Bern, uh, North Carolina, was I would see a house, and there'd be a marker there, say, this is uh, uh, Washington's journey, he stayed here, or he had a meal here. And I thought, well, this is great. Here I am in, I'm in the same building, I'm, I'm close to the man. And then I would find, by questioning maybe a docent or a curator, that in fact the building I was in had been moved sometimes once, sometimes twice, wow. uh, in order maybe to save it from termites or hurricanes. And so what passed as the real world of George Washington was in fact somewhat of a fiction because the past, the very buildings I was studying, had had such a fluid history. I guess what I I learned was not only uh, was I a historian of documents, but I had become something of a historical archaeologist on this trip, trying to just pin down where physically he had done the things he mentioned in his diary. 
I remember reading a cartoon. It was probably in Boy's Life or something when I was young, and it was Martha and George Washington outside an inn, and Martha is saying to him, come on, George, in 100 years, who's going to care where we slept? <laughs> and Martha, of course, isn't with him on this trip, but he really did choose, as we talked about, very carefully where to stay. But that was only a small part of his choreography. You talk about that in the book, his performance, his stagecraft. Washington, the actor, which is another way that we don't see him, but we see him here in your book. He's really trying to do this all to create the presidency off the top of his head. Well, he he is trying to create uh, the presidency. And I think some people who have read about Washington come away with the feeling that he was overly reserved, maybe a little awkward. Uh, Let's be frank, perhaps a little dull at dinner parties. And there's some truth to that. But what what I learned was he had a masterful sense of what you and I might call political theater, especially in the South. Uh, People had come to expect that uh, he would appear before them, not in a business suit, but as commander and chief of the Continental Army, the revolutionary father. And so he would often stop his little caravan a few miles outside of the town uh, go back, change out of his uh, leisure clothes into the full regalia and pick a special horse, a very impressive white charger, you a battle horse. And then he'd go riding ahead of the wagons into the town. And so the, the entrance of the greatest man in America, the man, the, the, he was the only president that was, uh, had every vote in the Electoral College. It's never been duplicated. And here he comes riding into your town as, as the revolutionary general. Of course, it impressed the heck out of everybody, but it was theater. I mean, it was all carefully choreographed. And that's a side of Washington I had not known before. And his, what you just call raw political instincts about how to make a positive impression on the ordinary people of America. My guest is author Tim Breen, and the book is George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation. Douglas Bradburn, the founding director of the National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon, writes, quote, T.H. Breen convincingly shows America's greatest founder, George Washington, as a genius of political stagecraft who made the office of the presidency into the people's office and helped a divided and scattered people see and feel the purpose of their great union, unquote. That's, as you said, something we don't think of. We think of him as sort of, I guess, the amiable dunce I've said before to borrow from a phrase used against another American president. People just think, oh, he was just looked good on a horse and he was very tall. How many times did we hear that when we were in school? Well, he was the tallest one. So they decided because he kind of had these long shanks that they would make him the leader. And he sort of just was good at bowing at the right times or nodding. Anyway, it was important to him that he was able to combine the two things. And it really is an incredible portrait of him. And as he goes along, he he is fooled, though. I mean, there's human moments as you have on any road trip. There's a a Jeremiah Vereen. I read his story in George Washington's Journey, where he fools Washington into thinking it's an inn and it's just his private house. As you said, he doesn't get to stay in private houses. He doesn't want to stay there. But he goes down in the morning and tries to pay his bill. And they say, well, no, sorry, General. It's just our house. Uh, Another lady turns him away. Uxbrig, Massachusetts. She doesn't realize it's the president. I was that she believes it's the president of a college, does she, I think? or the yeah. the local assembly, and she turns them away. I forget what the exact reason is, but she doesn't know it's the president. She just thinks it's a president. Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine that, uh, turning Washington 
away, but she apparently had a headache that day. Washington, I think, his greatest strength, and getting back to the image, we think of Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton with such a creative insights into statecraft and, in Hamilton's case, how to create fiscal stability. These, these are tremendous men of genius. But what I would argue is that when it came to solidifying and strengthening the Union, Washington was just as smart and just as creative as those other men in his cabinet. And he he really understood something that I think probably neither Hamilton or Jefferson understood it well, and that was the force of public opinion. In other words, to make a republic work, a government of the people, by the people, electing the president, the president had to make himself at least visible to the people. And so this was not a monarchy anymore. He understood that the rules of presentation of power were, were different. And he rose to that challenge. It's equal in my mind to the challenge he rose in uh, leading the armies of the revolution. In some ways, instinctively, this man rates as one of our most ingenious presidents in the entire history of the country. And another of his concerns here, speaking about that idea of developing a republic and having people relate to the president, is people don't understand that yet. It happens later because of Washington's example, but people are literally trying to give him laurels when he comes through town. They want to build him a triumphant arch. They're, they're doing what they expect to do, of course, right? When you have a new sports team come in town over the years, we throw them a ticker tape parade because that's what we do for heroes. So even though football may not have been around as long as the Yankees here in New York City, you're going to do that or you do what you expect to do. And this is how we feed our kings. And Washington, he fights that, doesn't he? But he doesn't want to insult people either. So how does he finesse this idea of when he arrives in a town or when he leaves a town that he doesn't want there to be this huge spectacle? Well, he didn't want to become a Caesar and he didn't want to be a Napoleon or, uh, of course, that's a little later. But there were many people in our country that would have been happy making uh, Washington a permanent president, the general president. And again, it's to his credit, Dean. He said, look, this is not what we fought the revolution for. We didn't fight it to create a new king. We fought it to have a government of the people. So, as I said, yeah, yeah, he sensed the sense of public opinion. But he knew that what you and I might call the uh, political culture was more than just white male voters. That was another element of his brilliance in parades and in his dealing with women and town after town, in his dancing all night at receptions and just being accessible to people outside the normal political realm, he expanded the strength of the union. He knew that the wives of the men that he met uh, had also to be brought along into the new republic. In my book, I have a long section and a chapter about women that Washington dealt with and how they, even though they couldn't vote, were given a political voice in their access to uh, leadership. And that caught me by surprise, too, how aware he was of the nuances of power. And it was beyond, as I say, the normal political realm. Women really seemed to take to him in a way that 
yes, George Washington's journey, you see it. You see him traveling around, and Martha's not with him, of course, and that great white coach. I wanted to talk a little about who was with him, but he's not with his wife here. He's alone. Of course, he's completely respectful to women, and he does a great job of being memorable with them. I don't think anyone ever forgets dancing with General Washington. But there's one great part of your book where you go to what's called now the Washington Oak, and that involves a woman. So why don't you tell us that story briefly, because we can go and see that. Well, that really was a wonderful moment. It was a a late spring day in the road uh, south Myrtle Beach along the coast of South Carolina, just before you get into Georgetown, uh, some of my favorite areas of the country. And uh, Washington wanted to stop at the house of a family that any South Carolinian listening to your show would know, the Pinckney family and the Horry family. And he stopped at this great rice plantation. And as he came up the driveway, there was a huge live oak. My guess is that the tree was several hundred years old when Washington saw it. In any case, he went in and they had a reception for him. And as he was making small talk to his hostess, Mrs. Horry, whose uh, husband had recently died, he he had fought in the revolution. She said, well, look, this live oak kind of disturbs the entry into the plantation. It, It obstructs the view of my house. I'm going to order it cut down. And Washington looked at this magnificent tree, and he said, oh, that would be a big, big mistake. You should let this tree live. It's a noble, noble tree. And she did. And that was one of the first things on that aspect of my trip. I met the tree, and I thought, this is an amazing moment for a historian to have contact with a a living element of nature that Washington Himself, he had stood by that same live oak tree. I can't say that I had any great insight into Washington at that moment, but I felt that the trip was well worth it at that moment. And the tree is still there. If any of your listeners go there, it's a hoary plantation. It's a, it's well, well worth their effort. The South, the government of South Carolina has not attempted to restore the house. What they've done is to preserve it. And so it has a kind of romantic sense of the past there. It was very important. I was wishing that I knew because I was in Myrtle Beach a couple of years ago and I didn't know about the oak until I read George Washington's journey. And then I'm sure it's an experience you have. You say, gosh, I was I was so near history when I was younger or when I was there for a, a layover or something. And mm-hmm. so it's definitely a reason to go back down there to Myrtle Beach and sort of see that and get that physical connection. I mean, a living thing has a connection to George Washington. Absolutely. I might say there's no sign or marker that would alert someone traveling about the significance of that tree. You have to, I guess, just know your history, but it's called locally the Washington Oak. But uh, most of this trip has the proper signage. And uh, when you get to Charleston, it's clear the house he rented while he was there and other aspects. There was a huge parade. Indeed, the the whole notion of a great parade where the ordinary people will march and celebrate their government really uh, was born in this period in Boston and Salem, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Newburyport, Charleston. I, I reckon that probably as many people 
were marching in these celebratory parades as were spectators. It was just an outflowing of affection and admiration for the president. And you mentioned about him not wanting to be a Caesar. We talked a little bit about him not wishing to look like he'd given somebody his favor and trying to really constantly be aware. It must have been kind of exhausting <laughs> combined with these long stretches of just being miserable there in the coach. But I guess his footman and one other person travels with him, I think, correct? Takes care of the horses? Well, there was one one man who uh, I found rather mysterious. His name was Major Jackson. He was an Englishman who was a young Young man, uh, he was he was very strong, very handsome, and he went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, where he became a officer in the Revolution, and he distinguished himself. And one way or another, he came to the attention of Washington at the time of the Constitutional Convention. And I don't think Washington felt warmly to him, but he felt that he could trust him. One biographer of Washington calls Jackson the first Secret Service agent. I'm not sure I agree with that, but what I found interesting is that on that whole trip to the South, almost 2,000 miles on these dusty, terrible roads, Washington and Major Jackson sat. And I don't know of anybody in Washington's life that had that long, uninterrupted contact with Washington day after day on these roads, often through the boring backcountry. And it's to Jackson's credit that he never told tales later. I mean, if he'd been alive today, he'd probably rush and, and have a you know Rolling Stone expose <laughs> yeah. about life on the road with Washington. But that is not what Major Jackson did. He carried out his duties, and he, he was loyal to the chief. There were a number of slaves that accompanied Washington. I know that there are people that think that Washington is less of a man because he had slaves. But there were two elements I try to remind my readers. Is one is, unlike most of the Southerners, Washington actually did free his slaves in 1799, something that Jefferson never managed to do. And the second is that Washington was so afraid of the issue of slavery dividing the Union, of causing Georgia and South Carolina to leave the country, even in the 1790s, that taking it on board openly and strongly was a, a risk he was not willing to take. And for him at that moment, keeping the strong federal union could take second place to no issue. Now, looking back, we may wish he had done more, but in the context of his sense of the fragility of the post-revolutionary society, you can understand why he was reluctant to take on this hard issue. Well, you said before, our view, not his. I think some of the great things that he did, we can't really relate to and understand either. His example there is not Caesar. It's Cincinnatus. And I could hear people yelling at their radio. So I wanted to get that in, that that's his example, going back to his farm, going back to Mount Vernon and not seeking power for himself. He really does have many challenges, though. This is not a smooth road in Congress and in developing the government any more than the one that he's bouncing along over in his great white coach. Mm -hmm. John Hancock, when I was flipping through the book just now to refresh my memory, I noticed I'd written in the border that he was kind of a pain, and I kind of laughed at my own note. Uh, Rhode Island is dragging its feet, ratifying the Constitution. It's really a tough time, and Washington is the one man. Gandhi pops into my head. They said he couldn't be everywhere at once when he was trying to quell everything in India after independence. And mm -hmm. this is the thing. He's really really the linchpin. And he does so many amazing things. And yet he's 
they're humble throughout this. There's many funny moments. As I said, there's one other I, that I wanted to squeeze in. It's a young girl from North Carolina, Betsy Brandon. <laughs> George Washington's riding along. He's thirsty. It's dusty out there on the Great White Coach. He knocks on a door, and what happens? Well, that's a great story. I love it, Dean. <laughs> so it is a hot day in the South. He's riding along south of Salisbury, uh, North Carolina, goes into this little farm. The only person there is a young teenage girl. She's clearly out of sorts. So he says, well, what's wrong? And she says, well, look, all my family's gone up to Salisbury to see the president, and they made me stay here and watch the farm, and I really, really wanted to see George Washington. (laughs) And he says, well, I'm here. (laughs) I'm standing in front of you. And I have no idea. The records don't show how she reacted. But you can imagine she might have said, oh, go on. You're not really the president. (laughs) Stop fooling with me. But Betsy Brandon had her presidential moment in a way that her family never did. And keep in mind, everybody, there's no selfie stick there to ask Washington. He he can't pick up your phone and record your answering machine message. But how great would that have been to be able to do that in that moment if they'd had the technology to be able to really record that moment? But I guess she just had to hold it for herself and be glad that she had a brush with greatness, huh? Well, one of my other absolutely favorite stories in a document that I I uncovered in my research occurred near Salem, Massachusetts. And there was a young woman. She was probably in her late teens, certainly a woman, not a girl anymore. And the president came to Salem and a lot of her friends went to a reception. She wasn't there, but she interrogated her friends. What was he like? What did he look like? Was he nice? All those kinds of questions that you have when somebody else has seen a historic event. And in this letter, she says, I think the president is just one of the greatest leaders of all time. I just really respect him. There's only one thing I would have liked better, and that was to discover he was a woman. And here, this is in 1789, this young girl is thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a woman president? And when I found that letter, I thought it must have been a typo, or you know, I kept going back. Did she really say that she wished that George Washington had been a woman? And the fact was, yep, that was her consciousness on that day. Huh. Well, he had plenty of manliness to spare. He probably could have afforded to be a woman for a short period. He only would have been uh, 20 feet tall instead of 30 feet, the way that I look. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that I think people forget when they, they say he was a little bit uh, awkward is that, in fact, he was, by most standards, you and I would recognize, a very, very coordinated athlete. During the Revolution, almost everyone said that he was the best equestrian they had ever seen, that No one could control horses and understand horses as well as Washington. And he was also a magnificent dancer. He liked to dance, but he was really good at it. And people commented about his graceful moves. That's something you don't usually run into in the biographies of Washington that just keep him in the Capitol and and concentrate solely on on the cabinet. You miss that aspect of his life. Well, I'm glad you gave us so much of a full picture here in George Washington's journey. We don't think of him as the kind of guy that's on a road trip. We don't think of him as making a mistake and going and staying in the wrong house because average people dupe him or this ability he has to be an actor, his love of the theater that he applies here into making the presidency come to life that we still have today, of course, and look at all this pageantry is probably more than Washington would have liked. But 
In any case, our journey here is coming to an end. So I wanted to squeeze in one final question, and it relates to what you just talked about, about having a new president and about having potentially a woman on the ballot. What is the message of George Washington's journeys to cement this union as we look ahead to filling his job this fall? And I have to say, this is a question that you pose here in George Washington's journey, looking at him as an example, but also a very human person. Well, I'm glad you you asked me that, Dean, because people on the road when I was doing research, they'd often ask me, what would Washington think if he was alive today? An impossible question, of course, but in one sense, the answer was clear. I think Washington would have been appalled by the factionalism, the tone of politics, and I think he would have seen it as a harbinger, a danger, a regional identities, a diminishment of the Union. And I think if he were here today, he would tell the American people that the strong federal Union is still the best thing on offer for our shared prosperity and the strength of our civil society and our security in the world of nations. And the only danger we have to the strength of our country is our own indulgence in local and private and separate identities. I think that's the same message that Lincoln, if he were here, would say, is that at the end of the day, Americans are more prosperous and more powerful if they think about the Union than if they think about states or regions. Well, Tim Breen author of George Washington's Journey. Thank you so much for this unique look back at the many stories behind those George Washington slept here signs. Thank you for sharing the story of the Washington Oak. And thank you for the advice as we struggle to pick the best candidate to fill his gigantic shoes this fall. Well, Dean, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot for inviting me. The book is George Washington's Journey. The President Forges a New Nation. I hope it came across just how fun it was to read this book. There really were moments where I laughed out loud. I know it sounds strange because we don't think of Washington as funny, but the experiences that he has, it really is like planes, trains, and automobiles. Except, of course, he doesn't have any planes, no trains, and the automobile wouldn't be invented for 200 years. But he still has the same funny road experiences that we can relate to today. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. It's an Amazon link, and we hope you will click through there. Amazon kicks us back a few cents on every purchase you make, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. We're saving up gas money so that we can ride the same route as old George. I want to once again thank Professor Breen for joining us and for taking us on this ride-along with the great general. Please remember to follow him on Twitter at Timothy H. Breen, and let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or at Facebook.com slash History Author. Well, that's it for this week's road trip installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening and happy riding and reading.